This is really about being free to create what you want your life to look like. We each are our own hero. And how do we take the challenges that come our way and see those as the birth process of us becoming heroic? Can you meet that judgment that ultimately will surface with neutrality? This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. Wow, do I have a good podcast to share with you guys with Lance Breitstein. I can't wait for you to see this interview, but I wanted to remind you if you have yet to sign up for my free ebook, Discipline and Finding Your Edge, do that today. Go to traderdiscipline.com, sign up for the free ebook. Also, friendly reminder, please subscribe to our station. And if you like our podcast, please spread the word. We are trying to get word out there, and we would love you to give us a comment, give us a subscription, click, and then you'll get reminders when we have new podcasts. We have such great guests coming in soon. I want you to see them all. Thank you so much for listening. All right. Aloha for now. Welcome back, everybody, to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Uh, very excited today to have, you know, the hottest trader that's out there right now with me. And he was the star of a recent podcast that Trades for a Cause did. Uh, there were a lot of stars in it, but he's shown pretty bright. Uh, Lance Breitstein. Did I pronounce it right? Breitstein, but we'll take it. Kind of like Einstein, Einstein, or any of the above. <laughs> Damn it. I really want to get that right. Uh, I'm going to give everybody his formal bio, but I also just want to say that his uh, heart of being a contribution back to traders is huge. And it's just so obvious, even just on his Twitter feed, how much he really wants other traders to succeed. So if you're unfamiliar with Lance, please do what you need to do to start to get to know him because he's really going to be a contribution to you. Uh, Lance graduated from with highest distinction from Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. He went on to become an equity trader for Trillium, eventually building and managing the firm's Chicago office, as well as becoming their top trader in 20 and 21. In 2018, Lance founded the Impact Competition Foundation, which is a nonprofit with the mission of turning students into lifelong volunteers, donors, and socially minded citizens. Lance also sits on the board of Traders for a Cause, a nonprofit that raises money from traders for charity, and he's pre presented as well uh, at their annual conference in Vegas. And in 2022, Lance actually resigned from Trillium to focus full-time on the Impact Competition Foundation, as well as other growth opportunities. Welcome, Lance, for coming on my podcast. Thank you so much, and so happy to be there. And I think the big theme is I love to give back and just share my experiences, my knowledge, and ideally pass it on to those can, that can take advantage of it and helping out the trading community. Yeah, it's obvious that that matters to you. It just shows up in everything you're associated with. So thank you for doing that. I think it's a cohort that needs uh, as much support and encouragement and education as they can get. So I think it's uh, really a beautiful thing that you give so much time to them. So thanks for doing that. Absolutely. Um, My pleasure. Are you comfortable telling us how old you are? I am 32 years old and I'll be 33 in July. And okay. so I was actively trading for Trillium for about 11 years. And, okay. uh, and now I'll still trade on my, on my own account while also, uh, you know, just, just giving back. And it, I, I still do a lot of mentorship of traders. Uh, 
I'm an, an, an advisor to SMB Capital, so I do some some trader talks there and, and help their guys. And uh, the whole the whole big picture goal is uh, really reaching scale of an audience to to share that with. Yeah, was it hard for you to step away from Trillium? Um, I think I was I was very lucky where I had really kind of the, the, the dream career where it started off uh, like most traders as being a huge struggle. Uh, and, and never did I ever think I had the potential to be number one. Uh, my goal was simply, hey, I love this stuff. Can I just simply earn a living? And I think what allowed me to succeed is the work ethic I provided. I just never took the foot off the gas. And so when some people found some modicums of success, a lot of people tend to think like, okay, now I can rest on my laurels. Whereas for me, everything, every success I had, it was all just rocket fuel that motivated me just for that next level, the next level, the next level. And uh, that mindset never stopped. And so I was, I was so fortunate that especially between 2020 and 2021, like I, I, I really way earlier than I expected was able to achieve like what I wanted to accomplish where I was number one. I had trained uh, some, some really nice traders. I had had some great uh, mentorship experiences. And uh, at least with my personal trading, it was at a point where it's like, okay, like, you know, I've, 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 I've everything can be refined and optimized to infinity. But the, the marginal utility after a certain point was like, look, like I've, refined my systems. I've tested myself in, in all types of markets. I've traded the craziest days out there. Uh, the amount I'm going to incrementally accomplish or achieve or do here is, is limited, whereas the world is so big. And I think like out there in the rest of the world, the impact I could have on, on is, is, is undecided and infinite still. Yeah. And so that really was, was what led to some of those decisions. Let's just uh, talk about that work ethic of not taking your foot off the gas pedal. You were quite young, right? This is presumably 11 years ago. So what do you attribute that work ethic to? Yeah. And, and so I think everybody probably has, uh, uh, is, is some, some consequence of their upbringing and everything else. And, and, my family was probably the, the typical middle-class family where you see uh, you see your parents work their ass off and you see what struggle looks like and you see uh, the importance of, 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 of money and education and everything else. And, and you say to yourself like, man, like I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to work my ass off forever. And, and so like work ethic from a very young age was, was imparted upon me. And, and I remember like I was, I was the person where even in, in high school, if I was lifeguarding or something, I was not the person working 10 hours, 20 hours. I was doing 40, 50, 60, 70 hour work weeks because it was like I wanted the financial freedom even as, as, as a young adult. And, uh, and, and by the time I got to college, it was one of those things where it's like, look, this is the time to take things seriously. I maybe goofed off a little bit in, in high school, but it was like, okay, like the future is, is coming. And, uh, I just knew like anything you get in life is the consequence of the work you put into it. And the beauty and the appeal of trading so much, uh, was the ethos appealed to me in that sense in which trading is so much the input you put in 
is what you get out of it. And there's so many jobs. And I see my friends at these jobs. You can be uh, the best at your job, or you could be the best at your company, or you can work, you can work so many hours, you can do all these things. But if it's a job that doesn't reward that, it, 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 isn't, you know, it isn't the place to be. And so part of the beauty of, of trading was I knew like, Lance, like if you think you're going to work so hard, if you think you're so competitive, if you have this chip on your shoulder and you think you can outperform everyone, then go into an arena where, where that kind of makes a difference. And, and to this day, that's the beauty of trading. That is particularly the beauty of, of day trading and prop trading is even more so than being a sales trader at Goldman or whatever else, it's, it's where the rubber hits the road and, and it's that trial by fire at, at a very young age. And there's, there's no team to hide behind. There's no desk to be hide behind. You are your account. And, and that is all there is. So I, I'm going to just ask maybe a complicated question, but for those people that are not afraid of hard work, we both know that you can work really hard at trading and still not get ahead. So how would you recommend to a person that what's the ruler they need to measure themselves against in addition just to work ethic? What else are the qualities they have to be sure they organically bring to that? Yep. Yep. And, and so it's, it's like the saying goes where, where you can, you can work hard, you can work smart. And so I think what, where the magic really happens is when you're working smart and working hard. And so it's true that it's not as simple. It's, it's not as simple as just simply working hard. If you're putting the hours in, but you're putting the hours in an ineffective manner or in an area that is not going to pay dividends, well, then guess what? You could work a hundred hours a week. It's not going to do anything. And I think what people fail to notice is yes, there's people out there that work a lot of hours, but they're also probably the people putting it into these successful places. So the analogy I always give is if you're an intraday trader, you can spend a hundred hours a week reading analyst reports, but guess what? You're doing the, you're doing work. It's, it's, you're putting time and effort in, but it's not the right kind of time and effort. And so would I rather have a hundred hours of analyst reports or would I rather have 10 hours a week of just somebody reflecting on their trading, journaling, doing a daily report card, reviewing, watching, watching videos of their trading. And uh, the 10 hours a week used intelligently will get you somewhere. The hundred hours unintelligently will not. And so I think what separated me as, as a trader and then also eventually as, as a manager and, and trainer of others is I really focused on the meta learning and I really spent the time to take the step back and say like, okay, where is the most productive use of my time and how do I want to spend it? And um, it's funny, actually, if, if you want a great example of this, uh, one of the videos I'm going to be recording uh, tomorrow at, at, at SMB is on my number one tip to accelerate learning as a trader. And what it essentially comes down to is I would record the tape uh, of, of my trading mm -hmm. and every single day I was recording my trading and I would condense each week down to a matter of like the three or five trades that were the standouts of that week. And so you take all this footage and by the end of the week, I would reduce it down to 30 minutes or 20 minutes or 10 minutes. And so it might take people another week or a month or a year to get all those reps. But if yeah. I'm spending my Sunday uh, afternoon, just a couple hours watching tape, I can relive that week four or five times very easily. So I'm getting 
what might have been 50 hours of, of, of desk time in a matter of an hour or two. And so I was just getting so many reps than so many more reps than everyone else. And uh, with some of the guys I work with here, we're talking about processing time. They're like, oh, I recognize the trade, but I'm too slow to process it. And I'm like, well, guess what? The best thing you can do is reps, 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 because your mind starts to just to make the connections faster. You start to see things faster. And it's almost the equivalent of, of driving, learning to drive the car. When you're a 17 year old, you, you, can't, you can't talk on the phone and eat a cheeseburger at the same time while driving because your mind's in overload, right? But you know, if, if, you're, if you're older, you're able to shave, put on your makeup, do whatever uh, while you're driving because you're, your mind is connecting these things and it's on autopilot. It's almost like, you know, like the Ram is able to process it all in the background. And so you can hold a conversation while you're driving. You can merge on the highway while the radio is playing. And so what we're really doing as traders is we're building an environment where you can simulate the real time, most important reps, right? Cause like when you do this practice, you're not replaying yourself driving on uh, an open field for four hours. That's not the stuff we care about. I want you to replay the video of you merging on the highway where somebody stopped short and those most important minutes, we're getting reps and reps and reps and reps, which accelerates everything. You spoke to in the Traders for a Cause, uh, it was a walk about Boston, right? For those who want to find it, and maybe we can put the link in the liner notes. But you talked about the struggle of those first two years that you went through. And I'm curious if you'll talk just a little bit about that struggle and then to the pieces and or characteristics within yourself or externally that allowed you to endure them. Yeah. And, and I think this even touches on an interesting part about trading, which is, which is the qualities that might make someone succeed. There's just so many different ways to skin a cat and and there's so many combinations of them. And so at least, at least for me, um, I think I was very good about the meta learning aspect of it. So the time I was putting in effectively was effective. Um, and then I think I also had the, the work ethic where uh, not just put in the hours, but sustain the hours for a much longer amount of time than anyone else, especially when things were frustrating or as some would call grit. Um, but then I think I also just had the, uh, the lack of, of limiting beliefs. And what I've seen with a lot of people over the years that I've trained is so many people get in their head limiting beliefs and they will say, oh, I can never do X or I can never do Y or, oh, there's no way I could ever make 10 grand in a trade or there's no way I can ever be number one. And um, so at least for me, I think it was, a lot of those things aligning. And then as to, as to why I, I think obviously at the end of the day, you're the summation of your experiences and, and what you've read, what you've learned, who you've been around, the influences you've had. And maybe it was just parenting or, or whatever else, but it was, it was, I learned that one way or the other, like you are what you put into it and that's what you're going to get out. And I also learned that like, look, if, if someone out there can, can do it, why can't I? And so that was so much of my mindset at, at Trillium was if someone out there is the fastest trader, 
Why can't I be the fastest trader? If somebody's making money in this style of trading, why can't I do it? And I think too many people are, are afraid of failure. And so I'm, I'm that constant tinkerer where I'll be saying like, look, if someone's doing this, like, let me try. Or if this type of strategy is, is working, let me try. Or if this, is, if this is the status quo, but that doesn't make sense to me, why not fool around and just, if it doesn't work, you iterate. And, and I think, I think um, it was, it was um, I think it was Carol Dweck who wrote about just the growth mindset and how when you believe that all of these traits are malleable and that you can influence your ability to change these, it's first of all, it's true. And second of all, you just perform differently and follow that through. And, um, you know, I, I, had, I had read that book. I had read things like talent is overrated in the talent code. And, and what I learned is, was a lot of the principles of, of my meta learning, which is like, you have the ability to affect change and to affect change. You just need to put the work in and get the deliberate practice and, and all that other good stuff. So possibility is what it sounds like you're always coming from. You see possibility for yourself, yep. maybe for the world, for those you're working with or mentoring. What would you say is if, is that the one of the number one deterrents to the traders who get in their own way? Is that they're not in the mindset of possibility? Or do you find that it's really technical uh, ignorance? Oh, I, think, I think there's a million and one reasons why someone can struggle or fail. Yeah. Um, and you want to know what I, I think is... is kind yeah. of a, a Lance theory in a way is people want the simple, uh, people want the simple answer or the simple prescription. And so that's where everyone's trying to find, okay, Lance, give me, give me the trading strategy. That's going to make, make me money. Or what is the answer to success? And you get all these self-help books where it's trying to distill everything into some simple, easily packaged answer when it's like, the reason why someone fails can be 10 different reasons, depending on the person. The reason why someone succeeds, it's 50 different things. And, and because things can't be so easily put into one box mm -hmm. is why you can, you know, to this, right. If there is an easy answer, the self-help book would have been published a hundred years ago and everyone would be successful. And, uh, but that's also what makes it exciting, right. Is that's what makes the journey so amazing is just because someone does something one way doesn't mean you can't do it the other. And you're going to get people that will say, oh, if you're doing a startup, never ever compete based on price. Right. <laughs> but then, you know, you're going to find people that had their success solely based on price and they were able to cut costs and offer the cheapest product. Right. And so there's, uh, there's just so many ways to find what works for you. Uh, but I think the real the real commonality is precisely that, like people find what their unique strengths are. And I think you actually want to know a great analogy, right? Yeah. Is for starters, how did I end up day trading? Why didn't I end up at a DE Shaw or yes. a Jane Street Capital? Yeah. And for starters, it's because I knew what my strengths were. I knew what my strengths were. I knew what my weaknesses were. I played to my strengths, which was, you know, grit, quick thinker, you know, smart enough, but I knew, guess what? I'm not, I have no computer programming background. I'm not 
some crazy uh, math expert. And so a lot of people, for, for starters, if you're trying to follow other people's prescription, you're not really playing to, to your own and you're not applying it to yourself. Do you think you were always somebody that was self-aware? Even understanding your strengths is a self is a level of, I think, self-awareness. Do, do you yeah. feel that that was present right from the get-go as the journey began? Yeah, and so I think if there was some rating of, of introspectiveness yeah. um, versus the broader population, I think I would without a doubt be in the upper decile, if not percentile. And if I were a betting person, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, if a lot of the people, a lot of the people that kind of see these things differently or, or, or achieve these things differently probably do so through introspection. Like, like my question for you actually is, would you agree with that where most, most of your guests and the people you work with or mentor would, would you say they all rank high in introspection? Because I think otherwise you don't really come upon these answers or ask the right questions if you're not doing it. Agreed. They, yes, they definitely are. They, they are also willing to see themselves as cause in the matter, if you know what I mean. They see themselves as what can I, you know, yes, I have to learn how to trade and I have to understand, though, how I am going to view that because my lens is impacting even what I see. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's it's so important where um, people, people are very afraid of, of viewing things objectively. People are very afraid of acknowledging uh, their own weaknesses. But, but paradoxically, it's like acknowledging your own weaknesses allows you to have a better outcome or pursue a better path. And, and that's, that's almost still like the issue with, with trying to find like, Hey, what's, what's the, what's yeah. the right path for this trading or that trading or this success or that it's like, I can, I can give you my path and you can say, Oh, that's the worst advice ever. It doesn't work. And it's like, of course it doesn't work. Cause it's not your path. <laughs> like, like you need to do the introspection to figure out what's going to work for your strengths and what you're trying to achieve. And guess what? If your goals and values and priorities aren't the same as mine, it's you're never going to want to end up in that same place anyways. Exactly. Exactly. And I, and I think part of the reason that that happens, it's hard to like look at yourself objectively is because they, they're not looking at themselves objective, objectively. They have a, people, all of us, me included, tend to make ourselves wrong when we see the ways where you're maybe costing ourselves or not uh, showing up in the way we hope to. And that I think is part of why it's so hard for them to look objectively. It's like, well, if you're going to make yourself feel shitty about yourself, it's really hard to go into change. You just, you just, who wants to be with the shame, right? So part of my advocacy is how do you look at yourself neutrally without judgment? so that you can change, so that you don't feel so ashamed about making a mistake or making lots of mistakes that you don't, you know, you can't even focus on the change because you're just so busy feeling crappy about yourself, you know? Yeah. So, do you feel 
that your ability to be objective over those difficult years included that? Like, I'm just curious of your mindset and that self-talk. Do, do you believe that your self-talk is something you were conscious of and was more encouraging as opposed to making? <laughs> what's, what's funny is I think you find people that are, I think we all have friends that are the euphoric, irrational optimists. And then you have friends that are the pessimistic, most negative, nothing, they're not good at anything, nothing will ever go right. And I think, I think a lot of science literature is showing that you kind of need both, like they both roles serve their, their purpose in, in society and evolution and everything else. But I think if you were to ask me, like, I think there's some sweet spot and it's much closer to optimist than neutral, uh, but it can't be so optimistic that you lose realist, realism. Yeah. And, and so what, is, what does that really mean in practice? It means that like, I was very much so aware that I was struggling. I was very much so aware that if something didn't change, I wasn't going to make it. And I think what happens for a lot of retail traders is they get caught on this dream and they know this dream can be very, very hard to achieve and struggles part of it. And then they aren't realistic to their progress. And so I think with anything, with anything you're trying to achieve, you always need discrete objectives. You need a discrete objective. You need a timeline of which you want to accomplish that objective. And then you need your strategy for getting there. And yeah, it's iterative. You always need to improve that strategy, but it's like, and this goes back to being introspective and, and reflective. It's like, if you're not taking the time to map out that path, so much of this stuff, if you're just moving haphazardly, you're just, you're just never making it there. And, um, and you really just need to set out, I'm at A and I want to end up at B. This is the path I'm going to get there. And, and look, I'm an optimist and I'm going to keep pushing and it's going to happen. But I know I need to adapt along the way. And like, so a lot of people, you want to know a great example. And, and this was even when I had lunch in LA with, with one of our mutual friends, he was telling me about traders around him that this wasn't their type of market. And so their conclusion, therefore, was, look, I'm losing money. I'm not adapting. So, of course, therefore, given this, the right answer is I need to stop trading. I need to go to the beach. I need to take the couple months off. And I'm like, wait a second. Like, look, without question, taking time off is better than just irrationally losing money and doing strategies that don't work. But I'm like, it's not one or the other. Because this trader, our, our mutual friend, his conclusion was like, yeah, I think I should also be taking the time off. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm like, I'm going to blow your mind right now. But there's actually a third option. That third option is not trading your current strategies and losing money, not taking time off, but using this time to learn and adapt and evolve and build new strategies. And so what I'm seeing, whether it's with some of the traders I mentor, uh, just, just in friends or SMB or wherever, is it's a different market regime right now. And the people that haven't adapted need to. And the only way that happens though, the only, look, there will always be bear markets. If your answer to a bear market is I'm going to go to the beach. Well, guess what? You're missing out on a huge amount of PL, right? And some of the most opportunistic days can happen during bear markets. Just because you have one type of strategy doesn't mean you just sit out if it's not in play. What it means is you learn the other type of strategy. And I think going back to some of my strengths, right, is 
is I was just so open-minded to the, to, there is money somewhere, someone's making money and I'm going to find it. And so if we're in a hot IPO market, then I'm setting the IPOs. If we're in a hot low float market, I'm setting the low floats and whatever it was, I'm just studying what's working. And so one of the beautiful things about being in a firm is you're surrounded by 50 or a hundred or however many really smart people. And out of that group, someone's usually making money somewhere. And so then you can like a lot of the guys I was advising today, I was saying like, look, you're struggling. Who are the people that aren't? And it's true for any industry, any skills at anything. You're struggling right now. Who are the people that aren't struggling? Who's succeeding the most? What are they doing differently? And how can you how can you adapt? And um, it's 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 such a it seems obvious, but a lot of people don't take that step to say, look, what what is working and how can I? I don't know if people think I don't know if people are afraid that it feels like copying. Or maybe it feels like cheating where you're not allowed to. I'll, I'll tell you what they think it is. And and this showed up even you put out a tweet that we were going to have you on. Some of the questions actually on Twitter were what happens? They've spent all this time mastering that particular style. And now they're probably one eye is still looking at that style while they're learning a new setup and they're thinking to themselves shit i'm losing those opportunities because i can't really pay close attention because i'm learning something new that's happening and they're also afraid i think to let go of the emotional comfort of what they know what if they can't master this whatever the new this is yeah and so i'll i'll even i'll even tell a story where, where so much is one thing I really focus on in, in everything I do is is the long term, and forget about forget about your PNL this week, this month. What is your PNL going to be like in five years, in ten years? What are the actions you need to do to maximize it over the long run? And so, one trader I'm good friends with, um, he was very exceptional at at news trading, but he, my style was very much kind of different from his. And he saw that there was a lot of scalability and other money out there. And so pretty much he started to learn this other strategy. And there was an opportunity cost, right? You're no longer refining your, your current strengths. You're no longer um, putting all your focus into that. And uh, he, had, he, had a tough, he had a tough year, right? It didn't even, it, not even a tough day, not even a tough month, a tough year. But guess what? He eventually built that skill set, and that skill set has been particularly applicable this year. And so this year, he's had, especially a couple of weeks ago, he had a massive, incredible, incredible win, a win that probably was a good chunk of his year normally in one day. And that only came from him paying the dues, the dues over such a long time. And to his credit, a lot of people, what they start to do, and this is, this is my favorite thing in the world that, that tends to happen, is uh, is people will start to put in the work. There's always learning pains. And so once they do the learning pain, once they experience the learning pains, they don't see the progress and they lose faith and they quit. And so my favorite example, right, is, uh, is you know, say, say with, with dieting or something. It's the people where it's like, I haven't seen the change in the mirror. I'm only losing a small amount each week. I don't see it. And so then you quit. And it's, it's almost just like, imagine swimming across the pool. You're trying, you're trying to get to the other side. You get halfway to the other side and you say, oh my God, 
I'm never making it to the other side. So I'm going to swim halfway back. And you say to yourself, you're like, man, you, if you just stuck with it, you ended up doing the same amount anyways. And, and so what happens is, uh, it takes a lot of faith and conviction and, and a lot of really wetting your mindset to, to the long run. Um, and I, I think, I think a lot of the best thinkers out there, that's the mindset they take. And, um, because it leads to just so many, it leads to so many drastically different decisions than if you prioritize the short run, because look, if if you're trying to make money every single day or every single month, you might pass on that trade that you're going to lose in, but you're going to build a rep in. And so that might not, that might seem like the optimal decision each day in the short run, but what you're missing out on is that where you end up in the long run, you could have been so much better off. And I think like you hear it from CEOs, you hear it from athletes, you hear it from traders. The best CEOs are the one that say, look, I don't care about the wall street estimates. I don't care about playing that game. Like Elon, Elon Musk, he's not thinking about Q322. He's thinking about, you know, 2032 or even 3032. Right. And I think that's where the biggest advantage is. And, and, and so one, one thing Mike Bellafiore does, does a great job here is he doesn't have traders thinking about, oh man, I'm in a drawdown or I'm having a tough time. The market's changed and I, I haven't been able to adapt. What he has them thinking about is, look, the dues you're paying now how and the lessons you learn, how much will this benefit you over your whole career, your 10, 20, 30 year career as a trader? How much will this benefit you in all the future bear markets? You're not building these strategies for today. You're building these strategies for a lifetime. And it's so true where it's like, if you do that mindset and build, build it up, everything's cyclical. There will be hot IPO markets. There will be hot low float markets. There will be bear markets. And um, if, if you never take the leap though and pay those dues in the short run, you never experience the rewards in the long run. It's just a natural human bias. So, so what do you say to those who perhaps are going to use like the word that they don't want to quit their strategy? or that this is, they, they just have to wait till their strategy comes back because that's what they're good at. I, I can see that argument appropriate in certain environments. How would you, what would you point a trader to to assess that appropriately? Well, here's what I think is the funny part is, is most of the time, it really comes down to opportunity cost, right? You're spending time in one area versus the other. Everything's always opportunity cost. But the the total ironic part for these traders is the whole reason why we're having this conversation to begin with and why you're even considering it is because your current strategies aren't working. You're about to just go to the beach for three months. So it's, it's like, if your opportunity cost is zero anyways, then what's even the argument here? And look, if your strategy... If, if, if in 2020 you trade a lot of volatility and crazy stuff, yeah, that's not, that's not really the time to learn other stuff. If, if it's like the, the heyday of, of what you're doing, but guess what? If, if you're, if, if right now things are slow for what you do or non-existent or negative expected value, there's no better time because your opportunity cost is zero or even positive to learn this. And, um, so that's, that's where, look, I'm not saying, uh, there isn't an opportunity cost. You should always be learning 
other things at every given time, sometimes the best thing you can do is optimize your current strategy. You know, if, if you're, if you're, a, if you short low floats and, and, and these low floats are just melting to zero in a straight line every single day, you want to focus on your sizing and how to push, 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 and how you can add to this and spot more of your setups. But like, there's, you know, there's times when you press and there's times when you diversify, you know, it's the same as uh, anything else. Yep. For sure. For sure. I think also the ego can get bumped and bruised in these times. And it's, it's hard to be, you know, the master of the universe for a period of time and then to not be. So is that something you've ever gone through yourself where you had a strategy that was killing it? It did sort of morph into a little bit of your identity, even if you tried to not let it and then bam, it wasn't available to you. How did you navigate that? Yeah. And so I think, I think part of the reason why trading is so psychologically hard is because your performance becomes your identity and your P&L is so much of, of, of who you are. And so early on in my career, every single hole, I would struggle with so much. I would just notoriously, you know, I was a, I would go for the home run trades and sometimes things go wrong if you're a big trader. And so I would get in these holes that were just so psychologically debilitating to me. And I would be depressed for days. Like it would ruin my whole week, my weekend, I'd be miserable. It's all, if, if you're a conscientious, like trader, like all you think about is, is, I can't believe I made that mistake. I should have done this. I should, you ruminate, 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 and it just messes with you. And I think part of that process was I eventually learned that all those mistakes, all those holes, first of all, I always made it out of them. And like, after enough experience, you start to have faith where it's like, not only will I make it out of this, but it's these losses and these mistakes that make me a better trader. So the paradox that I point out in, in some of my work is those times of struggle are actually when you improve the most, when you're most uncomfortable and when you're in the worst position, that's when you have the most opportunity to learn and become a better person, a better trader. And so eventually, look, I'm not going to say anyone enjoys being in a hole. I'm not going to say anyone enjoys these losses, right. but the mindset that actually develops at an elite level is you embrace the challenge, you embrace the learning opportunity, and you have that long-term mindset knowing I will be a safer, better, stronger trader as a result of this. And so one of the guys at, at SMB, um, he had been struggling this year and, and we were in this team meeting and everything. And his takeaway just resonated so much with me because he said, look, I'm, I'm almost out of the hole now. Uh, I learned, uh, you know, it was a tough time. It was my first big hole, but I learned about stoicism. I learned about uh, how to deal with adversity. And he's like, I am going to be not just a better trader, but I'm going to be a better person because of this. Right. And if, if you were to ask, like in the moment, if you could undo that, that loss, any single person would say, I would give anything to undo this loss. But the reality is you actually want it. You, it's, it's the opposite because you will never become as good as you could be if you don't have those times. And, and it's not just trading, right? It's, it's, it's life. It's, it's, um, it's just evolution in general, right? Like you could think about uh, like, like relationships, right? And it's like, you know, say, say someone cheats on you or someone does something awful to you or whatever else. It's like that experience 
might make you a make a more courteous partner in the future. It might help your communication skills in the future. It might might help you in all these different ways. And you can't um, you can't end up in the same final destination unless you have all those learning experiences. So true. So true. I think I think trading is the best school of consciousness out there. It's going to force you always to be with the hard to be with things that's just going to up level you as a con it gives you the opportunity to become as conscious as you could possibly become because it's you know so unpredictable and never ending yeah and there's there's some weird there's some weird rule of life where for whatever reason generally the the more difficult and uncomfortable something makes you probably the more valuable it is, whether it's having that hard conversation or doing the difficult project that you don't want to do or doing the difficult reflection or uh, whatever the case may be. It's so often those things that you dread that are actually what you need the most. It's what's leaving your comfort zone, right? And look, it's easy to go to the beach, right? That's a very, very easy answer. It's very hard to have beginner's mind and start from scratch learning a new strategy when your current one doesn't work. That's right. Um, I'm a huge Joe Campbell fan and he has a great quote and he says, the cave you fear to enter is where your treasure lies. Yeah. It's like being willing to look at that scary dragon, but it asks a lot. We have so many questions from Twitter, but first, Lucas, please, I know you have questions, so let um, me be quiet for a minute. <laughs> well, I'm going to try to address um, a couple of the questions from Twitter and maybe wrap up uh, at least a, a, something, something, maybe combine a few into one. Um, right. And we'll see if it might be multiple questions, but um, it goes along the lines of the meta learning. And with, you know, you, you talked about like maybe watching back tape of, uh, especially like the the most those wins that you had. Um, do you also do that for your losses? Like, did you do that early on for your losses as well, or did you primarily focus on what was working? Oh, it it was absolutely P and L agnostic. Um, it doesn't matter whether I won. Doesn't matter whether I lost. What were the most important moments? And guess what? If I can if I can avoid a loss that is just as good as making a win, probably even better because it's less depressing <laughs> when you avoid losses. <laughs> and uh, so, so I would solely focus on what are, the, what are the moments from that week that will give me the most benefit thereafter to, to be watching. And it's, it's something where it, it might not even be a trade opportunity at all. It could just be something interesting to spot on the box, right? So maybe maybe I didn't even trade the ticker. Maybe it's not in my playbook. Maybe I never would have traded it even retrospectively, but it's like, oh, wow, like look how, look how this might have bottomed. You know, you can see, you can see this buyer come in, you know, he starts to refresh and everything. Then he drives it higher. Like those couple minutes of tape signifying that bottom, even if it's, a missed opportunity or nothing that might be just super valuable, um, to, to replay for me. Okay. And I guess along similar lines, I think a lot of people were asking about back testing and I'm wondering, um, and you responded saying, basically, I'm not an expert in back testing and I never did a lot. Uh, but I think also people were asking about how, you know, when to like really size into what you consider like A++ opportunities. And I feel like maybe that's where um, people are kind of conflating those ideas. And I'm wondering just your take on it 
Um, and yeah. if that was because of those reps you've put in or how did you notice that for yourself? So that's, so that's a great question. So there's, there's a couple of things, man, there's a lot there. So <laughs> for starters, I find backtesting intraday strategies quite difficult because there's just so many different nuances. And if you're trying to do some generalized backtests, um, you can just have so much data that gets conflated with, with other things. And you might just miss all these opportunities because ultimately there's so many nuances and to backtest some of these are, are really quite hard. And what I would say is more important to me, look, if, if, you, if you're a quantitative trader and that's your whole system, then of course that makes sense. But I think for the average intraday trader or just really most traders, um, what was way more important to me is having a framework and the lens for how I view price action. Um, so essentially I have some basic principles, right? And that might be, uh, I want to be with the trend rather than not with the trend. It might be, uh, the greater the change in price over time, like the faster something moves, the more likely something is to mean revert, or it might be, uh, you know, that a bottom is signified by a huge volume capitulation. You know, I could have all these principles that allow me to build this framework. And so what that allows me to do is if I had a whiteboard right now, I could draw 10 different charts for you. And based on every nuance in each chart, I could tell you how this becomes better or worse for my system. And so then the real question, of course, is does, does that theoretically line up with reality. And so the, the issue with backtesting, right, is because like, how do you, how do you necessarily backtest things? Like what did the box look like? Uh, you know, what did the intraday look like versus the daily chart? What was the rest of the market doing? Um, what was the liquidity like? There's just so many different nuances, but what I can do is theoretically is know what my lens is and rate it according to that lens based on all those things and be like, if this is a 10 out of 10 chart and this is a one out of 10, we were a seven out of 10. And I can do that for all my different variables and get like a rough setting. And so like people ask like, you know, how did, how would you know about this? And so I never had super hard data because like, if something is, is based on my framework, a screaming, screaming, screaming by, like I would know, I can't wait that the same is just something that barely meets the criteria. It's just totally different trades. And so where I do think data is valuable is then of course, studying the data on your PL and your trades, which is very much not backtesting, right? Uh, you know, backtesting leads to a lot of analytical errors, but what you can do by analyzing your own performance data is say, I know I'm making money in this. I know these are my best trades. And so all the data analysis I would really need to do is say, look, uh, these is, this is where most of my PL is coming from. This is where most of my losses are coming from. These are all the qualities I look for in the A pluses here. And what I found is that in the, in the long run, my framework, you know, you start to refine. It's, it's like, it's like getting fitted for glasses where they, they, they change the focus a little bit. They change it. And like, you make these little tweaks and you say like, Oh wait, like if I, if I'm fighting and I'm buying on the front side, I end up losing on four out of those five lots. And it, it, it might look like I'm winning, but I'm really just winning on the ones I'm buying after the turn. And um, so that's where most of my data analysis would be and not so much on back testing of the strategies because it's just too nuanced.
Does, does that kind of make sense with all that? Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's, I feel like that is, uh, people are really going to like that part. I think that you answered a lot of questions and I think a lot of people don't know what to study and like mm-hmm. for, from, a, that perspective. And so I feel like that really helps narrow things down to where once you know all that, it becomes like, that's what being a great discretionary trader is, is like, you don't really have to think about it a lot anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, there's some things where it's just, if you have that lens, okay, let's say bank of America is at 35 bucks. Then in, in two minutes, it's at 26 bucks. Guess what? I don't need to run the data. I don't need to know how this strategy, I don't need to do any of that. Right. I know that bank of America is, you know, so I mean, let's even break this down as a, as a trade. Right. So bank of America, right huge, massive, massive, massive market cap stock. Uh, it's a financial institution. Financial institutions are very, very boring. Uh, it's hyper, hyper liquid trading millions and millions of shares a day. Uh, banks tend to not have news, even if they do have news, like let's face it, I've never seen a bank move, uh, you know, 10 points in, in two minutes anyways on something like that. And, um, so you can say like, okay, given that framework of how I assess this, if, a, if Bank of America were to go from 35 to 25, that would be a massive, massive buy opportunity. And then you can start to suss out each of those variables. Uh, you know, I can say like, you know, the large market caps better than small. And you can really do this across like all types of strategies. And so the way I would systemize, oh, so that's another thing I'll clarify too, is people always ask like, how do you build a system? And people always think of systems so one-dimensionally, like, you know, I, I'm computer programming and it says, ooh, buy if above moving average. And it's like, no, that's that's one type of system, but it, not necessarily all of them. And all, all the system might be, might, might just simply be like not anything automated, but it could just be like my system says, you know, if we break above resistance, I want to buy that break above resistance and my stop is at resistance level. Yeah, it's very simple, but that is one kind of discretionary system. And so then what you can do is you can add different variables to that, right? Like, how does that look like when that intraday resistance is also daily resistance? You know, if you were to ask me, I would say, look, if that's also a daily level and the daily chart and the intraday is aligning, what happens is your probability of that working goes up, the reward on the trade might go up, and then like your expected value ends up higher. And so it's, I would, the way I developed a lot of this stuff is by doing those little thought experiments and saying like, what would make this better? What would make this worse? And drawing my own little just theoretical charts. And um, it's, it's, it's a very powerful thing because you're not just, building, you're not just building a simplistic thing. You're building just a framework of viewing price action, like based on my rules and how I see the world, this setup will be good. And so, so many people try to think like one dimensionally when it's like, look, you can never, and that's the issue with backtesting again. Like it's just not one dimensional. And um, so it is a discretionary system, but it's something built on like a zillion different thought experiments, you know, is, is, is this type of stock safer than that one? Is this type of setup better than that one? What is what does it look like when the play is working out the best? What do I? What are all the things I want to see? One one interesting game to play is like, what does a bullish box look like? I want to see bids coming high. I want to see large buyers. I want to see taking of the offer. But 
what if you go to an extreme? Can it be unsustainable? Sure. And so how do you define that? And so I would just play this little game of like, you know, play all the little extremes. What would be good? What would be bad? And um, it's, it's a very powerful technique for building some of these strategies. Yeah, it's, it's a, it, what it sounds like is you're putting yourself in a perspective or paradigm shift and walking all the way around all those different facets that could happen and thinking through, is that going to be the one that I maybe didn't see? Yep. Yep. And, and I think even, even a lot of that, that always comes up is, and with, with mentorship or otherwise is just game planning the realm of possibilities. And I think, um, I think, that type of thinking is definitely a skill set and it's a skill set you need to develop and I'll be in these meetings and I'll be like, okay, like, so, so what, what were the possible ways this could unfold? And initially someone might just give you two answers and then you start to kind of tug on the threads and say like, wait a second, like, is it just two, you know, can you think of any more Then after enough thought, they say three, four five. And so I was, I was in a, a meeting recently on, on, you know, last week there was kind of like that, that tech bottom in some stocks. And we were saying like the game plans for how we would trade it off the open. And it's not just as simple as, oh, stocks can go up, stocks can go down. No, it's like, okay, what do you do if they consolidate? What do you do if they really panic? What do you do if they're steady slope of negative one? And you start to really go through all these scenarios and build your, your rules and your systems for each scenario. And that's kind of what's going on in my head. Um, and most people, most people do a lot of this just intuitively, but I think the next level that really helps is when you actually, uh, write down those thoughts or, or articulate them. Yeah. Yeah. Very powerful. It's so, it's so, it's such an important distinction and just that phrase that you use that one dimensionality, how I, I think it maybe just be on the lookout if you're approaching it with one dimension how do you get yourself into multiple multiple dimensions to really be able to see it in, in coaching there's a technique where we'll ask people for like different archetypes like you know darth vader luke skywalker yoda just for once grabbing off the top of my head and asking them what would what would yoda see in this opportunity what would luke see what would darth vader see and it just allows the paradigm shift to just step into another mindset. Cause I, I do think sometimes our own mindset we're invisible to, it's invisible to us. And, and what it sounds to me, it's like you develop this ability to come out of your own mindset and step into other shoes, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. And one, one thing that comes up a lot too is, is really in the best trades, every single type of trader on every time frame is, is kind of on your side. And so there will be these setups where something, especially you get these guys that are so long biased because the market had gone up for, for a couple of years straight and you had such a tailwind. And so every pullback looks like a buying opportunity. And you know, even if you're below the highs, it's a long, everything's a long, everything's a long, but I would say like, Hey, don't, don't you think like it's possible that could be a lower high, you know? And, and I, I remember where there is, there's a sticker and, and, and a, a trader I work with, he's like, Oh, I think this could be a good long opportunity. And I'm like, 
yeah, but I don't know. I could just as well argue that could be a lower I. And the market regime was changing. And sure enough, it was. And so one thing I tend to really focus on is I don't, I, I want to find the trades where every single person is, is aligned, right? So where are the stocks where on an intraday basis, on a daily basis, on weekly, monthly, whatever, we're breaking out on every time frame. Where are these stocks where uh, nobody on earth could argue that it's a short? Wow. So one example I tend to give is, is Tesla. Um, I, I think it was like that 900 level last year where it's like, look, uh, we're breaking to all time highs. We've consolidated up there for, for you know, a, a good amount of months. If you're a day trader, you're long there. If you're an institution and you're short, like you're probably scared and looking to cover. <laughs> if you're a fundamental investor and it just had earnings, you know, earnings, and I'm not going to judge, I'm not an analyst, whether they're good or bad, but it's, we're breaking out on earnings. We're getting upgrades, right? So it's like, if you believe the bank research, if you believe the fundamentals, if you believe the earnings, if you believe the technicals, if you're a day trader, if you're short and you need to cover every single person needs to buy 901, 902, 903, except guess what? If you're a day trader, you have the nimbleness where you can buy 900 point, you know, 20 or something. And guess what? If you're a hedge fund that needs to get out of 200,000 shares or a million shares, guess what? That's why you get the follow through. And that's why the stock goes to 910 and 920 and 930. And that creates that little feedback loop that builds on itself. Those are, those are the all-star trades. Um, it's not in, it's not in the places where you can argue uh, both sides of, of the trade. Yeah. That's, that's something I feel like people, I don't know if I've ever heard anyone really put it that way, but thinking about so much about how everyone else is thinking and trying to be in line with that. Um, it's obvious, like, right. But I don't know that I, I've ever heard anyone articulate it like that. Yeah. You want to, you want to know a funny example too. And, and look, obviously there's a zillion other nuances, but, but just, just as a general concept, right. Carvana went from 30 bucks for I'm not looking at a chart. Don't quote me on this, but 300 <laughs> something like 300 something post COVID, right. Where it was, Oh my God, every business is going out of business. But then it was like, oh my God, like Carvana used cars selling, not in person, no dealerships to the moon, right? And it goes to 300 something. And so then in a matter of months, maybe it was six months, whatever, we go from three something all the way back down to last week's lows of like 26. Now think about this. <laughs> the stock in a matter of a week or two goes from a hundred, it has earnings at 85 bucks then from 85 bucks to 26 bucks. If you're short this thing from $360, you are now up probably 94%. The risk you're taking to make that other 6%, you need the stock to go bankrupt. Not only to go bankrupt, but then to delist to actually get zero. Your asymmetry on holding that position is so, 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 so poor when it's gone there in just a straight line, fast path. So think about it. If you're short at any price, you've made almost all the meat on the bone. There is nothing left besides bankruptcy at this point. So you're probably looking to cover. Now think about it. If you are long or bullish or whatever, or not involved, if you're a day trader, a, a hedge fund, whoever, you're looking at this stock and you're saying, wait a second, how much could this have really changed in the last week or two? And you're starting to think, man, even if this goes bankrupt, I lose, I don't know, 80%, 90% in some far off future 
time. Like it could take years or months, whatever, for that to go bankrupt. But meanwhile, guess what? If you're buying at 26 bucks, if this just goes back to where it was last week, you're up 100%. What if the condition, you know, what if we go back into lock, you know, who knows what? There's all this whole confluence of factors where it's like, it's so asymmetric because you can make multiples of what you're investing in a short period with the low chance of losing not even 100% over a long period. And so, so many participants in that situation, like it really sets up the potential for an explosive bounce. And again, look, there's a zillion other nuances and, and details, but like it's that type of thinking that I, I start to employ in some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. We obviously represent, uh, we have an opinion that intelligence, emotional intelligence uh, is really important to traders. And there are those who are of the opinion that, uh, you know, emotional intelligence is the least important or not as important. Uh, more focus needs to be just on the technicals. Where do you stand in that, uh, you know, opinion? I think emotional intelligence for life, like would I rather have intelligence or emotional intelligence in life? I think emotional intelligence far trumps it realistically, despite the emphasis we put on, on otherwise. And I think, look, if, if you're a trader that's, that's very quantitative and you're just running a system, then you're able to remove emotional intelligence from, from the game for some part. And some people have met extreme success operating that way. But I think if you're if you're a day trader um, or a discretionary trader, just a human trader, um, you need that level of self awareness because um, because otherwise, like at the I would say, here's the other thing that I think is a common mistake is a lot of a lot of beginners overly focus on psychology and the emotional side of things, and they they think up, I'm over trading, or uh, I don't have the right mindset or this or that. And it's like, look, for starters, 90% of beginning traders, you just don't have any edge, you just don't have a system, right? And it's like, until you have that down, none of the psychology in the world is going to help you. Mm -hmm. But I think as you gain more experience and more skill, that's where the weighting of psychology matters. So I think at the very elite level, if I ever had a losing day pretty much or a bad day, that generally was most of my worst days were due to psychological biases and me breaking my system. But guess what? That wasn't true in the first year, or the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth. It only became true at the elite level because my system was so refined that it worked, but the biggest mistakes were just the human ones. And so then it became so, so, so important. But I think, I think the real winning of emotional intelligence isn't isn't seen on the charts or the PL curve. I think the real benefits of emotional intelligence just come in life. And it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's the people that are able to win people on their side. How can you, how can you befriend everyone? How can you help your mentors be invested in you? How can you find mentors? How can you build a support group that will give you the resources? How can you find the network that will care about you? How can you have the friendships and the relationships around you that will empower you to do all these things? So it's, it's I think the emotional intelligence is what benefits you just even more outside of work. And I think, I think that's an area where, where traders can, can lack. And I, I would always laugh because um, whether it was coworkers, friends, whoever, 
you find these people that are so smart and so successful, but they're limited because they're not taking advantage of that aspect. And, and, you know, there would be the amount of people that you can know in any situation griping about some problem. And then you say to them, Hey, like, have you spoken to the person? Like, have you, have you had this discussion with them? Have you brought it up? And again, there's, there's ways to bring it up like an a-hole and yeah. there's ways Sorry. to bring it up in a, in a productive, professional, helpful, caring way. And first of all, probably, yeah, bring it up like an, like an a-hole, probably not good at all. It's better to do nothing. But like what people miss is like just about any issue can be resolved when handled appropriately. And I think a lot of people that get so just because trading such an insular job, um, people way underweight these skills. And it's like, the world, the world isn't fair. The world is relationships. And it's, it's like, and, and I would just see it with, 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 with my own guys. And in my own experience, it's like, look, you know, like there is always a personal game and people think, Ooh, it's trading. It's all your P and L that's all that matters. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like you can, you can have all the PL in the world, but like, if, if, if you're doing it the wrong way, uh, you're, you're going to be left out to drive very, very quickly. Um, and I, I think, yeah, that's probably just such a big bias of, of, of traders in general is that, that emotional intelligence can take you so far in, in so many aspects of life. Well, thank you for, for seeing it that way. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I agree, not just because it's my business, but it's because I tried to strive to live that way. Um, but it's, it's just nice to hear that, you know, that's your perspective. And I suspect it's also your part of what's contributed to your edge, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, man. What's, what's, what's amazing to me is, so I work with a tra trading psychologist, um, even though the... What's funny too is we actually never once discussed trading strategy or anything because it really wasn't what I needed help with. A lot of the things are the emotional intelligence things. And, and I always laugh because as traders, uh, we have so much leverage, right? If you make one better trade, it's going to pay for itself. And look, the guy I use is, is, is incredible. He's extremely talented. He's got an incredible resume and he's expensive. Mm -hmm. And that being said, I would recommend him to, to traders or, or whoever, and and people wouldn't see the value in it, which I always thought was crazy because it's like you can one overtrade or one uh, FOMO or one anything or just imagine wouldn't you want to make even one percent less, but for fifty percent less stress and so many people it's it's one of those things where psychology is it's almost it's it's almost a struggle in itself because the people that are introspective and care about this stuff and see the value of it are probably the people that need it the least because they're already doing these reflections yes. but the most tone deaf people and the least introspective people that need it the most or the ones that would just never, ever do it anyways. So it's, and I'm sure you can probably speak to some of this stuff and like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, how, how do you end up or most, how do you think like, aren't most of the people you work with the ones that want to be helped anyways, and the people that need it just never seek your help or listen, probably how many people just don't even listen to, to advice you, you give because they're close-minded. They don't, they don't come to coaching. They just don't come to coaching or they come into a conversation uh, simply because of a referral from another client who will 
probably have combated internally those those arguments and then they speak to that colleague or fellow trader and then they make the case for it but we don't we don't get a lot of people calling us that we have to talk it into talk them into it 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 just doesn't work i just don't think people come here but the concept you're speaking to it's it's a an kind of a mindset of penny wise, but pound foolish. Yeah, hundred percent. Right? Like, oh, this is so expensive front, but you're like, well, let's think about what this saves you in the distance. But part of that, I think also is a scarcity mindset, right? I, I, that penny wise, pound foolish to me is informed by scarcity. So let's just talk about the concept of scarcity and greed for a minute, because it's, inevitably going to show up in a trader's experience. And even one of the Twitter questions, if I'm remembering correctly, talked about somebody, how do they, how would they, you'd advise them to fight that greed, especially because it feels to me, you have slayed that dragon, especially that you even at such a young age were willing to leave Trillium and put your focus into your nonprofit. So you've clearly wrestled with the demon of greed. I'm curious, you know, was it a bloody battle? It's, it's hard, right? Because as, as a trader, as, as a talented, as a very good trader, the opportunity cost to do anything is enormous. So you end up in this very dangerous path where you can be the trader that's at the, uh, to the detriment of your health, you are sitting there trading, you are sitting there sedentary, you're skipping the gym. In 2020, 2021, there were days where you can be trading at 5, 6 a.m. and trade until 8 p.m. And obviously that's unhealthy and the cortisol and the this and the that. And so for me to make that decision, it came at a massive opportunity cost. Yeah. In theory, it came at a <laughs> massive opportunity cost. But, and this was some of the stuff I worked on with, with, with my performance psychologist was it really only depends what your value set is, right? And if you're solely operating on a financial set of values, then yeah, maybe it will have an opportunity cost. And look, if I, if I was going to resign and every time something big in the market happened or anytime I missed the trade, uh, I was going to say, oh my God, like, I can't believe that I could have made so much money. Then I was going to drive myself nuts. Right. But my values weren't monetary. The reason for my decision to want to pursue other options and, and, and focus more on my philanthropy and giving back and helping others was because my value set was I have enough, right? And I think so many people, uh, it's that's the power of greed is no matter how much you have, there's always more. And and one thing, it's it's this is one of the things that drives me nuts the most is everybody wants to minimize and they will say like here you want to know what's considered rich anybody with more money than yourself and yeah, that's, exactly. that's what the mindset is i one of my, one of my favorite things that i i saw is some some cartoon where when you're driving on the highway the person driving one mile per hour faster than you you're like oh my god look at that lunatic jesus christ like somebody somebody pull that guy over and give him a ticket then the person driving one mile per hour slower than you're like oh my god like this old hoagie get the f out of my way like how can you drive so slow wake up you know what's wrong with you and it's it's so true where with with money it's just 
it's 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 a seductive siren song and there's always someone with more and there always will be more and there's always the joneses if you keep on playing that but and that's why the value game is so so important right because if you know that this isn't my value there's there's really scarcity of only one item that one item is time and and look nobody knows how much time they have guess what do you know what the uh what buffett's willing rate for him to buy back a year of his life it would be look you know it would be ludicrous he would give anything i know he hasn't said that publicly but let's be real uh you know buffett would give back any amount of money to be uh 32 years old again and what i realized with all this is like at a certain point you're not going to make any more money that will meaningfully change your life but there are things that will and whether it's enjoyment whether it's giving back whether it's making an impact those types of things were extremely important to me and i realized that uh that emotion of greed is so powerful. So now that I run my own nonprofit, you, of course, end up in the fundraising game where you're trying to get people to donate. And once you ask someone to donate, it creates this visceral feeling of fear and scarcity. And I know if you ask somebody, will you donate 5% of your paycheck? But if you have that in a serious conversation and you say, look, Will you agree right now for the rest of your life to donate 5%? Pretty much nobody will ever agree to that. And why? It's not that they need that 5%. They just as well could have negotiated some salary that's 5% lower. And they wouldn't even know they have that. But it's this really emotional, visceral feeling of greed. But it's irrational. And it's that irrationality that makes these things so difficult and why nobody's able to escape. And, um, and I think like what I learned is you need to list your values, you need to list your rationale, and you need to stay true to it. And what happens, I think, in the end is when you do decisions that are true to yourself, there's, you end up just with, with, with no regret in, in a way, because um, I've, I've not looked back a single day because I know what I'm doing now. I love, I have the freedom, and it's, it's, it's the stuff that I value. And um, What's also interesting too, is so often what you think you're going to miss out on, there's usually some solution where it's like, look, I'm still able to trade with, with my own account. Uh, I still end up even doing that super, super effectively and in ways that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to. And look, if I were to think only on the opportunities I miss, you're going to feel bad. But instead I focus, and this is thanks to my performance psychologist, what is everything I'm gaining? You know, I was able to go to Hawaii for a couple of weeks this year. I was spending the winter in San Diego. I was able to meet and I was able to meet these incredible people and these incredible uh, networks that are helping me out in infinity ways. I've met the most amazing, amazing people that if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have been able to experience. Um, I've been able to grow my nonprofit in ways I wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. And that's just in a matter of six months. What will that look like six years from now or 60 years from now? And it's like, I can tell you what the bank account, you know, it would, it would look higher, but it's like, to what end? Yeah. And uh, it's, it's like, to, to what end? If, if, if my goal is to just give back and help people, it's like, why, why wait 60 years to give back when you can do it now? And, um, and, and so many people might agree with this logically, but when it comes to actually doing that, you're paralyzed by, by an emotion. Yep, for sure, for sure. So let's talk about Impact Competition Foundation. 
that which you're honoring your values to do, tell us what was the reason you started it and what what does it do to nourish you? Why does it make you so excited and happy that you're feeling this fulfilled with sure. it? Sure. Sure. So back in 2018, I was, I was, you know, maybe it was slower market, whatever else. I was thinking like, what are some ways I can give back? And I think uh, everybody always gets their, their alma mater or wherever asking them to donate money. And I was always a little bit resistant just because you think it's going to this black hole and does it really matter? Will it make a difference? And I started to read up on these things and brainstorm. And I decided like, okay, Lance, like if, if, if you refuse to donate because it's a black hole, then like, okay, hotshot, like think up something smart that is going to be the most effective way to do something because everybody else makes these excuses. So do yep. something about yep. it then. Love and it. And so my solution was the impact competition. And so what we do is we host these little business competitions at universities and the university each year partners with a different local nonprofit and the students are challenged to solve the issue of that nonprofit. And then we provide the prize money and the seed money for them to implement that idea. So the first year at Indiana University, my alma mater, uh, we tackled, uh, uh, housing scarcity through Habitat for Humanity. And the winning solution was this amazing idea to build these tiny home containers for these students. Uh, well, not for the students, the student solution for the community. And now if you fast forward all these years later, Habitat for Humanity of Bloomington, Indiana has used that model and actually has these tiny homes now. And it's amazing because the prize money and the seed money is actually quite small. But what we're really doing beyond figuring out these solutions is we're, we're inspiring the next generation of students and we're turning them into future, future donors, future volunteers, philanthropists, or just socially minded students. And yeah. so when I was in college, I never had any exposure to this. I didn't care, but the world is different now. And so we're showing these students that in their community, there's these issues they're educated about them, and then they're tackling them in a very actionable, local, solvable way. And the feedback from the students, the community, the nonprofit has been incredible. So we're at Indiana University, we're at University of Chicago, we're at University of Maryland. Uh, we're about to sign Johns Hopkins and, and Micah uh, out, outside DC. We're about to, uh, we're making good strides with with Penn State and Northwestern. And it's this amazing concept because you're just touching so many students. Students and youth have the most enthusiasm. They don't see any limitations. They're always willing to iterate over and over and over again. They don't take it personally. So it feels like the perfect cohort to get them introduced and enrolled in solving these issues. They want them solved, but it sounds like this organization's empowering them in a way they have never been given the power. Before. Exactly, exactly. And the end goal too with some of this stuff is already, and at some of these schools were in the third year, the fourth year, and see so you build up this database of solutions and these solutions can become best practices for other chapters, right? So yes, we helped uh, Habitat for Humanity of Bloomington, but how can other local chapters potentially apply that solution as well? Or even we recently did um, 
a DEI campaign for the Bloomington Chamber of Commerce. So that solution, that Chamber of Commerce, if I'm not misquoting, I believe they have 900 uh, business members in the community. Wow. So that solution is going to provide a DEI training and education and this whole marketing campaign for 900 businesses. And it's, it's really amazing what this could then look like if we get this to 20 schools, 30 schools. And uh, coming from the trading world where, where a trade can be, you know, you can have a 10 grand trade. It's not the craziest thing. You know, it's, it's, uh, we all know it's far from the craziest thing in the world. Right. 10 grand trade is, is, a, is a very achievable trade. And to think that like that one thing can fuel this whole competition and you can touch 50, 50 student lives in a whole community. It's, uh, it's just this amazing, this amazing concept, which is why our motto is compounding positive change. And I think uh, it's, it's something where this is a legacy where you change the world. Right. And like my, my big gripe is so many people want to wait for the future. Um, but as I always say, like, look, money compounds, but guess what? So does, so does giving back and who knows, right. If, if I was waiting until I was 90 to start doing these things, like what if, what if the probably 5,000 students all impact in that time are going to change the world. Right. And so like, everyone wants to wait for someone else to do something and everybody just just wants to minimize 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 rather than saying like look what can what can i do what action can i take that's it and 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 i think too just the the heart of the nourishment that one gets when they are being a contribution is massive you know that the just just getting your need met to feel it i think a lot of people do want to be a contribution i think it's a need that they don't maybe have articulated for themselves but when they i i always look to the way strangers will give other strangers directions you know almost never will you find a person who's asked for directions not have the time they'll go out of their way to be that contribution that to me tells gives me hope for humanity like if you are taking your time to give somebody really good directions that means you do want to be a contribution give them a path how they can be a contribution that's what it feels like you've done is you're giving people that path to be able to really be that contribution i think more people want to be but they don't know how and they also don't realize how good it feels i mean it's so yep. incredibly nourishing and the literature backs backs that up. Um, it, giving back leads to a lot of happiness. And really the book, The Life You Can Save, touches on all these psychological biases that prevents people from doing uh, these decisions that 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 do give back. And and I think at the at the end of the day, like what what makes it hard is yeah, it does take some some time and effort. Um, but like every single person has the ability to do. As I say, you either have time, money, or wisdom. In yeah. some form, every single person, look, I know there's going to be some crazy examples. Someone on Twitter will yell at me be like, oh, you know, like this is, you know, typical online or somebody will be like, oh, you know, the people in Ukraine fighting for their lives right now don't have the, ch it's like, look, you know, I understand there's exceptions, you know, it's not about, you know, trying to minimize every single thing. But the point is that everybody can give back in some way, in some form, and they will be better off for it. But uh, you just need to think of, of all the good rather than 
than the excuses. Yep, for sure. One one, one funny thing too yeah. that that is is a is a great tie-in is if I've learned anything over over the training and the mentoring and everything I've done, and I'm sure you've seen with with the coaching, is so often you can bring a horse to water, but you can't force it to drink. And there's so many people where all they want is the magic bullet, the, the easy prescription or the answer of, Oh, if you just do a, B and C it's guaranteed success. And for so many people, whether it's with the, the, the site, you know, the training psychologist or this or that there's, there's no way you can get someone to do the hard work that needs to be done until they kind of come upon it on themselves. And, and that was probably one of the biggest lessons I've, I've learned so far is you can't, you can't force someone to become an amazing trader. You can't force someone to overcome learning beliefs. And if someone isn't ready to do the work, you can't do it. If someone's not ready to give or care or give, you know, give back in any way, you can't force them to do it. All you can do is really rely on, yourself to do the best actions you can take each day. And maybe that person comes around, maybe they don't, but in some way you just be the best inspiration you can to others. And it just kind of filters and fragments and ripples through the universe. And uh, you just <laughs> leave the world at that. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. This has just been an amazing conversation. I do want to ask, what did I not ask you that I should have? Hmm. Did you not ask me that you should have? I think there was a lot of good questions. Um, I think if I were to give, if I were to give any type of advice to the average retail trader or the average person out there, what it would really come down to is the message that you need to take the time to find what's going to be, um, first of all, where do you want to end up? What's the path to get there? And what are the effective smallest actions you can take? And, and what I find just from the Twitter community or elsewhere, the people I mentor is, um, is you really need that answered answered well, and you need to put the work in to figure out that answer. And uh, you know, you'll you'll get like the Twitter requests. Oh, can you tell me this answer? Can you tell me that? And half the time it's like, you know, it's just available on Google or whatever else. And the people that really really succeed are the ones that are going to find those answers and relentlessly work towards those answers and sustain it day in day out. And uh, and when someone has that mindset, nothing in the world is going to stop them. The people that don't have that mindset, you know, pebble in the road is going to be their, their mountain. Uh, but for the other people, a mountain in the road will just, you know, be their journey. Yeah, a pebble. <laughs> <laughs> They'll climb right over it. Yeah. Lance, this is amazing. You're an inspiration. Uh, just an incredible human being. I'm so, so happy to have had you here today. I can't wait for our listeners to hear what you have to say. Thank you for just being, never mind being here on this podcast, on this planet. Thank you for being. So really a pleasure. Thank you both so much. And uh, we'll, we'll take all the follow-ups and do part two hiking uh, in Hawaii.
We will definitely do that. I already have some hikes planned for you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everybody so much for listening to the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Please, of course, comment and like and subscribe and let us know what questions you do want Lance to answer because he is on top of those like white on rice. So we'll see you next time on the Wall Street Coach Podcast. Aloha for now. This is the Wall Street Coach Podcast with Kim Ann Curtin. You can download Kim's free ebook, Discipline and Finding Your Edge, at TraderDiscipline.com. And learn more about working with Kim and her team at TheWallStreetCoach.com. And if you're feeling generous, please leave a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.